So this morning we're going to be talking about um, another one of the thematic issues uh, that Junius mentioned a couple weeks ago. So we're pausing on our way to finishing the final great conciliar developments in theology of the early church that take place in the mid-fifth century. And we're taking a couple of topical issues um, as they arise. And this is one of the most important developments in ancient Christianity and through the Middle Ages, uh, which I've entitled The Rise of Monasticism which goes from about the middle of the 3rd century uh, to about the middle of the 6th century with certain major figures that are going to be outlining the contours of monasticism for uh, really the rest of Christian history, even up to today. The, uh, the uh, monastic orders that exist today are directly related to what you're going to be learning uh, this morning. So I put a verse here up on top of your handout that is kind of the leitmotif of um, all of early monastic history. It is Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. This is the NRSV translation. It says, Jesus, uh, Jesus is speaking, If you would be perfect, go, sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So you'll see this verse come up over and over again in early monastic literature, and it is really interpretations of this verse that give rise to this um, entire movement within Christianity. So before we get started, there are a few technical terms that I want to go through that are at the front of your handout, and these are going to come up throughout my presentation today, and they're going to be, uh, they're all derived from Greek and look a little bit intimidating at first, but once you uh, get a good sense of where they're coming from, the, they'll be easy to work with. So the first one is Eremitic monasticism. There are going to be a couple different kinds of monasticism that we're talking about, and this is the earliest one. This is how things get started. Uh, Eremitic monks are solitary. This Eremitic, this is uh, the root of our word hermit. Um, that's where that come from, and comes from. It means off, being off in the desert. Uh, Eremitic monks are sometimes called anchorites, if you ever see this when you are reading about monasticism, uh, meaning those people who have withdrawn. So there's, there's always a sense of being solitary and moving away when you're talking about Eremitic monasticism. And they remove themselves from human society to inhabit a desert, which is usually the way things get, first get started in Egypt and Syria, or some other kind of wild land. Um, later on, when Irish monks start appearing in the 6th and 7th centuries, they tend to move out to, to islands in the Atlantic Ocean and try to get away from everyone else. It's not a desert, um, but it's the same, same kind of idea. A harsh environment is uh, what these kind of monks are attracted to. Uh, and they go out into this wild land to commune with God alone. Um, so the, remember that is one aspect of this monastic dynamic. The second one is Koinobitic monasticism, that funky word sometimes spelled without, an, without the first O, um, looking like Cenobitic or Koinobitic, but Koinobitic. Um, coming, this is monks that live in community, and they live under a rule, a rule which we'll talk about in just a second, something that directs their daily behavior. It's written down. Um, it is an enforced code throughout the community. And these monks have their daily behavior directed often down to the smallest detail, um, hour by hour, where they need to be, what they need to do. Uh, they commune with God through together, through corporate worship, and through directed prayer. So it's a very different kind of lifestyle um, from the Eremitic monks, although it's somewhat related. Uh, the, the disciplines that they're trying to get at are very similar, but one group does it alone, and the other group does it uh, in community. The next word that we're going to look at here is an ascetic. An ascetic
aesthetic is, this is actually, it comes from the Greek word for training. Um, it's the same kind of word that you would talk about for athletes. When you're getting ready to go participate in the Olympics, you put your body through a regimen of training. Well, monks consider themselves as going through a regimen of training, a lifelong regimen. Uh, in the case of Christian monasticism, both the solitary kind and the communal kind, that training includes dedication to prayer, uh, the purgation of sinful thoughts and deeds, and the denial of bodily comforts, um, and even the necessities of life in the, produce, in the pursuit of perfection. And this last part is what is most often associated with asceticism, people who decide not to eat as much as everybody else, that overindulgence in food is bad, um, not to drink anything but water, maybe, uh, to sleep very little, uh, only a few hours a night, to sleep in very uncomfortable conditions with no covers or no um, mattresses or things like that. Uh, is, these are some of the telltale signs of asceticism, but they're not the whole idea. It's, it's training. And in fact, the, the time spent in prayer, the time sing, spent singing hymns and things like that are um, often more important than the sort of physical discomfort aspect, but that is, that's the part that really kind of sticks out. Um, both in their own time um, to other people and to us looking back at them through history. Um, and the last word that I wanted to define here is a rule, um, which is a, it is a description of community life of a group of Koinovitic monks. So Aramaic monks don't live under a rule because if they did, they would just be talking to themselves, um, which sometimes they were known to do. But they, uh, this would be something that is uh, more of an authoritarian structure. You have a founder of a monastery, someone who's put in, uh, up in charge of the rest of these monks, um, who is in, uh, called the abbot uh, from the Aramaic word for father, Abba, that you get throughout the uh, scriptures. And uh, this person sometimes writes the, the rule, sometimes inherits it, but he enforces and interprets the rule for the community. Um, and his word is final. So that is, those are some of the um, major characteristics of early monasticism that I would like you guys to have in mind uh, before we go in and look at a bit of the history. And we're going to look at the history of the rise of monasticism through three central figures in, in this development, uh, who, figures who represent and um, in some sense founded the different traditions that we're going to be talking about in monasticism. And the first one, chronologically speaking, and in some ways the most important one is a man called Antony of Egypt, who lived from about 251 AD to 356 AD. That is not a typo. He was around for over 100 years, maybe about 105, um, and is probably one of the reasons why he was such a great influence, because he was a man who was living the monastic life for a good 80 years. Um, whole generations of people grew up, were inspired by him, died, and had their own disciples while he was still around. So, Antony is considered sometimes the father of Christian monasticism. Now, he was not the very first monk to go out into the desert, and we'll see that. Actually, we'll be reading an excerpt from uh, a biography of Antony, and within that biography, there are other monks who are already out there when he is a young man and decides to go out to the desert. But he was a very charismatic personality, and he was very long-lived, and he was also the subject of this brilliant biography that we'll be reading, a very well-publicized biography, and so his way of living the monastic life and his story becomes the inspiration for generations upon generations of later monks that will be um, deciding to take up a, a kind of aesthetic life, um, either on their own or in community. They will often do it, having read this uh, biography of Antony. Uh, for example, Augustine of Hippo that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks 
uh, it was a major turning point in his life when he read a translation of the life of Antony and decided that he wanted to found his own monastic community. So this will reverberate through, down through the centuries. Um, following his entry into monastic life, Antony moved further and further away from civilization um, into the Egyptian desert until he was almost entirely alone. Now, this is actually a little bit easier to do than you might think in Egypt and in some, par some parts of Palestine and Syria. Egypt in particular, um, if, I'm not sure if you're familiar much with the geography of it, but modern Egypt is kind of a big square up in the corner of um, North Africa. And running right down the middle of that square is the Nile River. And in antiquity, as in now, well over 90% of the population of Egypt is concentrated right down in the fertile valley that's been carved by the Nile River. So you have high, searing desert plateaus for 90% of um, the Egyptian geography, and then this tiny little, extremely fertile valley running through the length of the whole valley. I mean, running through the length of the entire country. And this was such a rich valley. Uh, the Nile would flood every year and would take um, soil from the highlands of Ethiopia um, that would be washed down in the monsoon rains and flow northward in the um, Valley of the Nile River, so much so that the Egyptians could grow three crops of grain per year. Um, at best, in the rest of the Mediterranean, you could grow two, most places only one. Egypt, Egypt in Roman times was the breadbasket of um, the uh, Roman Empire, highly populated, and yet there was this stark contrast between the incredible richness of that valley and the um, wasteland that was just above it, and it provided a very strong poetic contrast in the minds of people who lived there between civilization and the wilderness, between comforts of life with plenty and the harshness of life without um, many of the things that God's creation provides. Um, so you had to go only a few miles up into the cliffs on the side of the, the hills or even a little ways beyond that to get out into places with 130 degree temperatures. Um, essentially no rain and uh, very, very difficult living conditions. And when Antony was moving out, his um, pattern was to move further and further up away from the civilized land out until he got to the point where it was a very elemental existence between a human being and God's creation. And um, almost all of the, the comforts and the distractions would be very quickly stripped away. And yet you could do this in a place where you were close enough that people could still make trips out to give you food. Because, of course, if you're not farming out there, um, you are going to die very shortly, and you're going to have a very short monastic experience. So these monks would be dependent on people from the civilized lands making regular trips um, out to, to get advice from them, to, um, to ex somehow experience their holiness, to help support them in what they considered was um, a very noble endeavor. And so the monks in this period are very, very far away and yet still a little bit close. Um, so keep this dynamic in mind. The geography of, of Egypt has an important um, role to play in the way early Aramidic monasticism especially was developing. So Antony, when he did move out in a way, the things that he did out in the desert were principally to pray, to, to train himself, to seek wisdom, and um, another one that might be a little bit surprising is to wrestle demons. 
be is reported in his life and um, through many other through many other um, monks that write about him as uh, wrestling with demons. And this is not a metaphor for um, you know spiritual warfare abstracted and him dealing with his own temptations. We're talking about like knockdown dragout wrestling matches with demons, multiple demons at a time, 20 of them at a time, something like that. He slams to the floor. He comes out. People who are somewhere near his, his cave or his dwelling place see lights, hear noises at night, um, and he'll, they'll come to him in the morning. He'll be bruised all over and yet triumphant. Um, so it's a very physical way of dealing with uh, spiritual warfare and this, this physicality, this idea of, of um, really going to, into battle with demons is repeated throughout much of the early eremitical monastic literature. Um, so. Now that we've gotten a bit of an introduction to Antony, I'd like to take you to our primary source for this week, which is actually a, the beginning of the life of Antony of Egypt, written by Athanasius of Alexandria. Athanasius is a bishop, um, bishop of the second largest city in the Roman world, the capital of Egypt. Um, now you know a little bit why about why that would be such an important capital, because it is the it's right on the Mediterranean coast, the mouth of the Nile, and it is the trading center for all of this massive amounts of grain that are going out to feed the rest of the Roman world. So the bishop of that city is going to be a very important figure. And as we've discussed, um, uh, both Junius and I have mentioned him. Junius has uh, mentioned he's um, one of the most important figures in the struggle between Nicene Orthodoxy and Arianism in the fourth century. And one of the things that Athanasius did was enlist the support of many of the monks throughout uh, Egypt and get them on his side, get them convinced that Nicene Orthodoxy is the way to go. And um, he also was able to hide among them. If you remember, Athanasius is somebody who was exiled five different times in, over the course of uh, his tenure as Bishop of Alexandria. And a couple of the times that he was exiled, he would hide among the monks. They would, he would just find a monastery um, somewhere out far away from the authorities, from the Arian Roman authorities in Alexandria, and wait it out sometimes for a couple of years at a time until he could get, get back to his see in Alexandria. And so his, um, his biography has spiritual and theological and political dimensions to it. He wants to convince the world as a whole that this, what's going on out there in the desert with these monks is a great thing. It is a great force for Christian orthodoxy. And um, don't we, the bishops of Alexandria and the monks, get along very well, as long as we're all um, Nicene orthodoxy, orthodox. Uh, there's a little more conflict that comes on later um, when there are different bishops of Alexandria, but we'll talk about that in a little bit more in the future. Um, so this is this begins with about a paragraph of Athanasius' introduction to what's going on here, and then um, the narration of Antony's original call out into the desert. Um, I've put together just the, the first page of this, um, which I think will be has quite a, a great deal of good information in it about what this kind of a conversion experience to monasticism looked like. And also, <clears throat> many of the monks that come after this consciously model their experience on what Antony experienced. So it's, it's really the paradigm of um, a person going out to begin the monastic life. Um, so if we could have a volunteer to read the first paragraph up to number one, this will be Athanasius' uh, introduction to what's going on. Um, do you have any hands? Yes. Starting the life and conversation. Yeah. The life and conversation of our Holy Father, Anthony. 
written and sent to the monks in foreign parts by our father among the saints, Saint Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria. Athanasius, the bishop to the brethren in foreign parts. You have entered upon a noble rivalry with the monks of Egypt by your determination <coughs> to equal or surpass them in your training of the way of virtue. For by this time there are monasteries among you, and the name of monks receives public recognition. For this reason, therefore, all men will approve this determination, and in answer to your prayers, I will give it fulfillment. Now, since you asked me to give you an account of the Blessed Anthony's way of life, you, and are wishful to learn how he began the discipline, you in what manner, who and what manner of man he was previous to this, how he closed his life, and whether the things told of him are true, that you also may bring yourselves to imitate him, I very readily accepted your behest, for to me also the bare collection, recollection of Anthony is a great accession of help. And I know that you, when you have heard, apart from your admiration of the man, will be wishful to emulate his determination, seeing that for the monks the life of Anthony is a sufficient pattern of discipline. Thank you. So this, you can see right here that this is very much um, intended as something to be published. People have started to ask questions. This is about four years after the death of Antony, so the mid-fourth century. This uh, phenomenon has been going on for a couple of generations, and uh, Athanasius decides it's time now to, to publish this story and get it around the Mediterranean, get um, uh, um, faithful believers uh, all around the Roman Empire to know what is going on in Egypt, what Anthony's life has been like, and to allow them to imitate it. So they, this, he considers this a sufficient pattern of discipline. This, um, this is a pattern that he wants other people to be able to follow. Um, you notice that the idea that the number of monasteries is increasing, um, and that this is a, it, it's a movement on the upswing. Um, and Athanasius very much wants to be a part of it, and he wants to um, understandably to direct the way that it is being perceived. Uh, do we have someone who would like to read the paragraph labeled number one? Yes, please. Anthony, you must know, was like the Sancton Egyptians. His parents were of good family and possessed considerable wealth. And as they were Christians, he also was reared in the same faith. In infancy, he was brought up with his parents, knowing not else but that in his home. But when he was grown and arrived at boyhood, it was advancing in years. He could not endure to learn to learn letters, not caring to associate with other boys. But all his desire was, as is written with Jacob, to live as a plain man at home. With his parents, he used to attend the Lord's house, and neither as a child was he idle, nor when older did he despise them. But was both obedient to his father and mother and attentive to what was read, keeping in his heart what was profitable in what he heard. And though as a child brought up in moderate affluence, he did not trouble his parents for varied or luxurious fare, nor was this a source of pleasure to him but was content simply with what he found, nor thought anything further. Thank you. So what are some of the things that you notice about Antony as uh, a very young child? What are some of the things that are important to, for Athanasius to highlight? He like gravitated towards this monastic life, even like before. It wasn't so much a decision for him, so much as like that was just like the way he sort of connected with yeah, that this seems to be something that goes back well before a conscious decision in young adulthood, um, that this is uh, the kind of person he is, that these, these tendencies have a natural expression. Was this yeah. saying that he did not read, or did he even like? Uh, when they talk about not being attracted to letters, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's illiterate. It, um, means that he's not interested in the study of the classical canon 
or in the comparative study of scriptures as a scholastic discipline, per se. But they probably had some basic literacy. It's, it's tough to say um, what, what exactly that means. But the, the dynamic of his relationship to education is very important. Doug? Well, um, I guess the question would be, what other documents do we have about the life of Anthony and his fascination He's advertising hero as well? Mm -hmm. We have a couple of letters from Antony, whether he himself wrote them or dictated them is um, a kind of a question up in the air. They don't deal with his early childhood, but they do express many of the adult opinions that Athanasius also talks about um, in his biography. We don't have another source for his early childhood. We don't have another biography like that. What we have, though, is um, people who are some of his contemporaries who then write about um, what it was like to be to learn from him and to some of the things that they saw while he was um, while he was in his prime as a monk. We have some of these are people that Athanasius interviewed and gets their stories and incorporates them later on into the life. So we have some other things, but it really is very largely Athanasius' hand at work um, in in this picture of of Antony. So this, this relationship to learning will come up um, over and over again in the early monastic literature, how um, there's, there's a tension because Christianity is a religion of the book and there are things that you need to know from scriptures. And so it says that you know, he, he's attentive to what is read and he keeps in his heart what is profitable, but he's not really interested in scholarly pursuits as such. There, there was a deep ambivalence um, in the monastic tradition toward um, the scholarly tradition, which was, at this time, um, naturally enough, made up mostly of the, the pagan canon of literature. So Homer, um, the philosophers, people like this, the playwrights, and many early Christians, um, including people like Athanasius and Origen and some other theologians, had a very deep ambivalence that we've discussed a little bit um, earlier in this course toward that canon of literature. And the monks as a whole tend to come down pretty hard on the other side of being um, opposed to learning that kind of literature. Um, so keep that dynamic in mind um, as we talk about some uh, later developments in the monastic tradition. So, yeah. Just a, an aside, if you will, when I first started reading uh, things from ancient history, I was amazed at the level of eloquence that educated people had back then. We were assuming the translator is not putting more into this than that was originally written when put into English. But uh, we don't we think of ancient people as being illiterate, and you know you read the Romans and it's just um, even over the level of what we write today. And I just find that very uh, I don't know if the word is maybe it's. It is incredible, I think, that the, the body of literature that survived from ancient times um, is the equal of the best that we can write today. Um, some people would say better. I mean, um, 
something like the the Odyssey is uh, an incredible piece of literary craftsmanship. Um, one reason that so much of what has survived is at such a high level is because if you you know this is a, a world before printing, and so if something is going to survive, it has to be recopied by hand, letter by letter. Um, at least every 50 years, every 50 to 100 years for the entire time up until the year 1500 when it can be mass produced by printing. And so it has to be worth copying. Um, so much of what has survived is uh, material written by the most highly educated elite. They would be a much smaller percentage of the population than today can write and write effectively. But, and so they would be very highly trained, um, dedicating really their entire lives to letters. So Athanasius um, was very highly educated, very well um, trained rhetorician. And much of the, the early literature that survives from this period is going to be of that kind. Um, and so it's the analogies, technological analogies being brought in, in development of technology over the last two dozen years um, should not be considered uh, a good comparison for development of literature over the last 2,000 years. Um, we haven't made those kinds of um, sort of developments in um, observation and repetition and improvement that are, that are there in technology um, within communication and language. So uh, the, the heights that people can reach um, in the year 350 uh, are pretty similar to what we can read, reach now. I have some books of the letters of uh, Cicero, and it's just like reading the politician today, Brian from Washington, Cicero in particular is somebody who's formed the backbone of rhetorical education for most of Western history, actually. Um, so up until the 19th century and even later, particularly in Britain, um, uh, this students who would wanted to embark on a political career would learn to write good um, political prose by reading Cicero in Latin. So yeah, so uh, this is this is going this is not going to be somebody um, scratching out a, a rough uh, uh, si series of recollections about um, a particular person. It's going to be a very well rhetorically crafted document that we're reading here today. Uh, do we have a volunteer to go to read uh, paragraph two, which actually goes over about two lines on the next page? Yes. After the death of his father and mother, he was left alone with one little sister. His age was about 18 or 20, and on him the care of both the home and sister rested. Now it was not six months after the death of his parents, and going according to custom into the Lord's house, he communed with himself and reflected as he walked, how the apostles left all and followed the Savior how they in the act sold their possessions and brought and laid them at the apostles' feet for distribution to the needy, and watching how great a hope was laid up for them in heaven. Pondering over these things, he entered the church, and it happened the gospel was being read, and he heard the Lord saying to the rich man, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and come follow me, and I shall have treasure in heaven. Anthony, as though God had put him in mind of the saints, and the passage had been read in his account, went out immediately from his church and gave the possessions of his forefathers to the villagers. They were 300 acres, productive and very fair. Upon himself and his sister. And all the rest that was movable 
Thank you. So what strikes you here about his uh, conversion experience? I wondered that too. Um, you know, you know, later people talking about it say that ah, yes, Anthony's sister was um, just as uh, zealous for the monastic life as he was, and becomes a great leader of um, the convent in which she is uh, deposited by Anthony um, when he's about 20 years old. I'm slightly skeptical, and I kind of wonder. Um, but she doesn't have a voice uh, in the history, which is not uncommon for this period, unfortunately. Yes. Um, apparently not old enough to have been married off yet, and younger than he is, so my guess would be anywhere between 6 and 15. So for him, it makes it easier for responsibility for him to just get rid of everything, take his sister out, and whatever, because he didn't have to worry about who would be pursuing her or anything, and didn't have to deal with the responsibilities that had been left with. Correct. He, he, was, he was avoiding responsibility by doing that. Because he had enough property to to manage it, and with that, with that, the standing brought by that property to make a good marriageable match for his sister. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted, as soon as his parents were dead and his and the, the property was in his charge, he wanted to get rid of it. And the easiest thing to do, uh, since it's notable that, of course, that there was a convent around at this time, that he's um, not the first person to be doing this, um, and that there was a place where he could put his sister, and he leaves a small amount of their property there to probably to give to the convent in order, you know, for them to take her, um, so that they don't they don't feel like she's coming in as a beggar, um, and gives everything else away. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, that that dynamic is is very important. Is the the so you you frame it in terms of he doesn't want the responsibility. He wants to get out of the responsibility. Um, monks who are who are follow, following this pattern um, frame it in terms of we want to get rid of the temptations. Temptation to be uh, a part of the world, to be dealing with the give and take of uh, managing property and making a suitable marriage for female relatives and of you know make, contracting marriage for oneself and everything that goes along with that, which you know Paul has some words to say about in First uh, Corinthians, and so all of that nexus of being drawn into the world, all of those ties, are things that these um, monks are feeling the, the desire to cut with one fell swoop by getting rid of material possession. Um, over here, and then Paul. Well, the point here, I, I think, is that he felt called by God, and he just made total commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very important dynamic, and the two of you have just <laughs> actually hit on the two sides of the way that people looked at this phenomenon from ancient times through today. Um, are you taking on a responsibility, of this, this responsibility of a wholehearted commitment to, to God and to the Christian life, or are you giving up responsibilities to other things? Which, wh what is the true motivation behind 
um, what you're doing, and really what it comes down to is an evaluation of the character of the individuals who are involved. Um, when you spend time with this person, does it seem like he's um, somebody who's glad to get rid of all these problems, or does it seem like he's someone who's genuine? Um, it's, it gets a little murkier when someone is um, uh, very, very poor or nearly destitute. If he goes, if he knocks on the door of a monastery, is he doing it because he knows that at least in the monastery he'll get regular meals? Um, you know, we think about this as, as economically a step down, but very quickly, particularly in the second kind of mon monasticism that we'll be talking about, um, for the very poor, living in the monastery was a step up. Um, it, was, uh, it was a guarantee against starvation. That alone um, might be a reason for a monk to say, I'm going to give up my work, I'm going to give up my ancestral land if I have any, give up the opportunity to marry and have a family, and this way I can survive. Um, yeah. Uh, Tolliver, and then over here. I mean, it seems to me that we need to be careful about I mean, looking at a person's decision through the lens of our 21st century um, way of looking at spirituality, the mm -hmm. world, you know. Um, because within this realm of monasticism, I mean, just from the little that I've read, it's not as. You know, I mean, you, you look at his life. I mean, even if you, you knock down the uh, the elaborate uh, platitudes that that uh, Athanasius gives to him, I mean, it wasn't like he went to a life of like more comfort. I mean, he, he suffered. Uh, it wasn't like he was changing it for a. You know, there was a significant suffering. Yeah. So we have to give some credit to that. There was something going on in his heart that obviously. Was bigger than the comfort of being out of uh, under the guise of the responsibility. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I think we just need to be careful. We're, we're looking through our lens. Mm -hmm. It's just very different, very different world. Yeah. And so I can, we'll, we'll see a little bit more about where he goes on from here. Um, and I can talk a little bit about what the, remember, eight more decades um, of his life looked like. And, um, why he was such a compelling figure, um, why, why the majority opinion, at least in the case of Antony, came down on saying that whatever you may think about um, his, the actions he took, at least his motivations were sincere, at least as sincere as anyone can be shown to be. Um, over here, and then we'll come on. Do we know what happened to her sister? Uh, that she did live in that monastery for quite some time, uh, or in that uh, convent for quite some time. Um, there are some stories that say she was eventually the prioress, the, the female equivalent of the abbot of that um, of, of that comment, but we don't really know for sure. We don't have anything, uh, stories specifically pertaining to, to the rest of her life in detail. That they put her in one, yeah, but after that we don't, we're not sure what happens with, uh, with the rest of her life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, would you like to read the paragraph three? And again, as he went into the church, hearing the Lord say in the gospel, be not anxious for the morrow. He could stay no longer, but went out and gave those things also to the poor. Having committed it to scripture known and faithful virgins, and put her into a common to be brought up, he henceforth devoted himself outside his house to discipline, taking heed to himself and training himself with patience. For there were not yet so many monasteries in Egypt, and no monk at all knew what business conducted. But all who wished to give heed to themselves, 
practice of discipline and solitude near their own village. Now there was then in the next village an old man who had lived the life of a hermit from his youth up. Anthony, after he had seen this man, imitated him in piety. And at first he began to abide in places outside the village. Then he, he heard of a man, of a good man, anywhere, like the prudent thief. He went forth and sought him, nor turned back to his own palace until he had seen him. And he returned, having got from the good man at the quarter supplies for his journey into the way of virtue. So dwelling there at first, he confirmed his purpose not to return to the abode of his father, nor to the remembrance of his kinfolk, but to keep all his desire and energy for perfecting his discipline. He worked, however, with his hands, having heard, he who was idle, let him not eat. And part he spent on bread, and part he gave to the needy. And he was constant in prayer, knowing that a man ought to pray in secret unceasingly. For he had given such heed to what was read, that none of the things that were written fell from him to the ground. But he remembered all, and afterwards his memory served him as a book. Thank you. So what do you see going on in this next stage of his life? Um, anything jump out at you? Yes. They seem to invite kind of old tradition of hermit-type people, so people are sharing this type of information. Is there any kind of indication as to how one would determine who is the right person to share with? Word of mouth. Um, and so... This seems to be a phenomenon that predates Antony, as we see. There's, some, there's at least one old man who's been doing this since his youth. Um, and if you imagine that Antony is going out in the desert around 270, um, this is from the early part of the third century that, this, that uh, people have been out in the desert. And this is it's something that you would hear. So remember, this is close enough to villages and civilizations that you can say, oh, you know, brother so-and-so is out here, and another brother there, and three more in this direction. And one of them is a little bit shaky, but the other one, that, that guy, he's got some really amazing things that he can teach you. And so people like Anthony, who f are feeling the call, can um, go out and find different teachers. Um, one, uh, in this case, in Anthony's case, more than one, moving from one to another. Whenever he heard um, that a monk um, had particularly wise things to say, was living a certain kind of uh, an aesthetic experience that Antony wanted to emulate. He could go um, to the feet of that monk for um, some indeterminate amount of time, um, you know, weeks, months, sometimes even years. So there's this constant dynamic or tension um, between monks moving out to be mm -hmm. solitary and yet people coming out to find them. Um, so no, so you know, monks sometimes in these stories will manage to be totally or almost totally isolated for long periods of time, for 5, 10, 20, 30 years even. But they always um, are found out and kind of pulled back in by people who want to emulate them and want to, to know. So now that you've been out in the desert living this aesthetic life in prayer for 20 years, what have you learned? What, what can you teach me about how to do it? Um, what can you teach me about the practicalities of it? You know, how much water and salt do I have to have to survive in the burning desert um, in the summer? And monks can tell each other that sort of thing. Um, where is a good place where I can find a cave um, that is suitable to actually, you know, give me protection uh, enough to live? Um, where, where's a village where there are people who are willing to, to supply me with, um, you know, small amounts of food that, that will keep me going while I'm out there? 
um, all, all, all these kinds of information are being traded back and forth between these monks um, as they're, they're aiding one another in this new uh, life experience, which is a very difficult one, as, we'll see, uh, as we can see. Um, you know, the Antony that, that we mentioned here in um, the life of Antony, that at his time, the, the far desert was unknown. So Antony is portrayed by Athanasius as going out further than anyone else goes, um, trying to get trying to really and totally sever these um, connections with civilized life. Um, and for you know, a large portion of the middle of his life, he is successful in doing so. He goes, finds his own mountain area that he goes and um, lives in alone. He's, there's just enough, um, there's a spring and just enough uh, land there that he can um, take some seeds and grow at least part of his own food. So he goes very long periods without seeing a single person and um, manages to gain great spiritual authority through uh, his practices and what people know about him. And then he comes back, at least part of the way, he never comes back into civilization, but close enough where he can take on disciples. And for large parts of the, the later part of portion of his life, he is training many, many monks. And uh, monks seek him out from all over Egypt and by the end of his life from places outside of Egypt. They've heard of him um, in other parts of North Africa and Syria and Asia Minor, and they come and travel to um, to Egypt to see to see this man in the flesh and to really um, learn about um, how he lives his life. So uh, his um, his reputation, even before Athanasius writes about him after his death, uh, is, is very very great and is one of the truly powerful phenomena in um, lay Christian experience in the fourth century. Yes. The only access the the only access that many of these monks would have, um, they would often be visited by a priest who would administer the sacraments. Um, and we uh, the priest would often probably say prayers and um, recite scriptures to them um, or back and forth, so it would be through conversations. So remember, um, a monk is not a priest. A monk is not clergy. A monk is a lay person. Um, monks can, over time, go through the training and take on holy orders and become priests, but the two things are, are not the same. And so a monk who is um, not a priest, of course, cannot uh, administer the sacraments to himself, and so one of the last ties that a monk would cut would be that between himself and the, the sacraments, that um, he would, the, um, there are stories even of monks who live entirely on the sustenance provided by the sacraments. Um, uh, physiologically, this doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> I, have a, I had a classics professor who was a, an MD before she had a PhD in, in classics, and um, when we were studying this, said that the caloric intake that they're talking about, it doesn't match up. Um, so it, it's either a miracle, an exaggeration, or we're not sure what. But the point, uh, literarily speaking, is that um, the extremes to which some of these monks would go in their asceticism was such um, that they, they could be portrayed as living on taking, taking the Eucharist once a week, once a month even. Um, and that they would be willing to go that far and to make their dependence on God that total, um, that 
the and take things so literally that the bread of life becomes literally that it becomes the the way that you sustain that one sustains oneself in um, physical life as well as in spiritual life. Um, and so there would be regular contacts um, often between clergy monks um, for that purpose specifically. Specific, yeah, specifically. Yes. So in fact, either gave up or did not have access to Christian worship as we know. Uh, definitely not communal worship, and that is one of the the major um, charges leveled against paramedical monks in the early period is that you have given up corporate worship in the body. Um, monks would off, monks would counter with the fact that we we are in prayer with our fellow monks and with Christians everywhere, and our our contribution to the body and our um, role within the body is one of constant prayer, and through that we, we have communion. Um, but you're right to say that the, the, that physical community is what they're most definitely cutting themselves off from. Yes? Do they see what they're doing as just a special calling for a certain few, or do they see it that it would be best of all Christians? Different people say both. Uh, some say that no, only you know he who has ears to hear this this kind of call should take it. Others say, well, actually, you know, there, there's no there's no restriction on this, and you should all really be doing what we're doing. Um, and that becomes, of course, a, um, a source of some tension within the Christian community. Is do monks feel like that they are the only ones living the, the true Christian life, um, and that the rest of us should get on board, or are are they? performing one specific and important role within the differentiated membership of the body of Christ. Um, so why don't we put, um, put Anthony in a bit of context by talking about a couple other major um, monastic leaders who uh, represent a related but different view of what monastic life should be. So the next major one, um, also in Egypt, is a man named Pacomius, who uh, lived from about 290 to 346. So he starts off in his monastic journey a uh, uh, full generation after Antony and yet is outlived by Antony. Uh, he, Pocomius is known as the founder of Koinobitic monasticism. So he started out as a hermit. Um, his, his story is very similar to Antony's on that part. He goes to a couple of different hermits and learns about what um, how, how to live um, in the desert and to live the monastic life. But when he, in turn, has disciples that start to gather toward him, he decides that instead of taking them on a one-by-one -one basis and informally teaching them what he knows, that he's going to make this a bit more regular, and that if they're going to learn from him, that they're going to learn to be a part of the community of which he is now the head. Uh, his way of organizing this community has um, very strong parallels with Roman military. He was, in fact, a legionary um, before he... Um, when he was discharged, he converted to Christianity, and then from there decided to become a monk. So a lot of his training, a lot of his, his way of understanding a community was uh, based on the military. Um, excavations of some of the earliest Koinvedic monasteries in Egypt um, look like legionary camps, or very something or related to it. They're, they're laid out in a similar way, and some of his and um, his idea of a authority structure is actually much more of a command structure. He he positions himself um, in the sense of a um, military officer over recruits within his uh, monastery. And in order to um, have this 
to, to make this regular and official, he, he writes a rule, so a written description of uh, how these monks should live, um, the, which we talked about before. This is one of the first um, rules that exists in Christian monasticism and is copied and influences, uh, copied by and influences many um, later Christian writers who write their own rules for their own communities. Um, it is, it's both a, a spiritual guide, um, how you should pray, what text you should use to pray, and a um, disciplinary guide, what your aestheticisms should look like, how we take meals, um, things like that, and uh, a guide to morality. Um, what, what, is the, what is the code of acceptable and unacceptable behavior within this um, group of monks. And he was very successful at doing this. And um, he, by the time he died, was abbot general over nine monasteries for men and two monasteries for women. And his, his model of monasticism quickly overtakes um, eremitical monasticism in terms of numbers and influence within the early church. Um, as you can imagine, communities of monks are going to have more spiritual and political weight than single individuals out in the desert. Um, however important those single individuals become um, in terms of their, their spiritual authority. Um, so Anthony would be uh, a truly great spiritual authority, but um, to have you know, several dozen communities of monks that um, are living in a certain way and believing certain things is going um, to have a greater influence. And our final person that we're going to be, uh, final personality that we want to discuss is a man called Benedict of Nursia. Um, and this is where monasticism leaves the, the Middle East and the desert regions and goes to Italy. Um, Benedict is the founder of European monasticism. Moving a little bit further forward in our period, um, Benedict was born in about 480 and lived in the middle of the 6th century. And he is probably the most, uh, the monastic career most directly important to us in the Western world because as the founder of European monastery, every monastic order throughout late antiquity and the Middle Ages is directly dependent on um, the model that Benedict provided and the rule that he wrote. And in fact, I have a copy of Benedict's rule right here, nice slim volume, even with a scholarly introduction to it. Um, and I'll go ahead and pass this around. Uh, if you want to flip through the middle, just it's really um, it's very accessible. It was not um, intended to to convey um, erudite theology and rhetoric. It is uh, a very practical plan for how this community should be organized and how these people should live together. So I'll go ahead and pass this around. So as you have a chance, just take a quick look through it. Um, Benedict's rule is austere, but very less harsh and less militaristic than that of Paconius. Um, it is something that appealed to a much wider number of people um, than either the extremes of Aramidic monasticism or the, the, the strict discipline of Paconian um, military monasticism. Um, it is still, by our standards, quite strict and quite austere. Um, so it's all, it's a matter of sort of your, your relative opinion of what um, uh, your communal life um, in Christian community should look like. But the, that's where it stands um, within, its own, within its own time period. 
the central practice of a Benedictine community was something called the Divine Office, also called the Liturgy of Hours. Um, and this was, at its core, the recitation of the Psalms in community, um, sometimes sung, sometimes chanted, in a continual cycle. And you will recognize probably um, bits and pieces of uh, some of these um, words here. And um, this is a part of Catholic tradition um, up through today. I mean, uh, churches in New Haven celebrate uh, masses that are based on this time cycle. It's a, it's a division of the day into roughly three-hour periods. Uh, lauds goes on at midnight. Matins, early morning prayer, probably about 3 a.m. Prime, as in with the first hour of daylight, so usually around 6 a.m. Terse, um, originally from the, the word for three, the third hour of the day, since um, in Roman times they would count the, the hours of the day from dawn, which would be about 9 a.m. by our time, by our standards. Uh, sext, sixth hour of the day, or midday. Um, Vespers, evening prayer, probably about 6 p.m. And Compline, late night um, or late evening, uh, night or late evening prayer, which would be about 9 p.m. And so the monastic day in uh, Benedictine Monastery was at its core um, organized around these monastic hours. And um, that was the, the core of their training, the core of their community building was these services being held throughout the day, every day. So they would, you know, they would go to bed and wake up again for mountains and then go back to bed. And so, I mean, it's, um, it was the, the fundamental structure of um, of the day of a Benedictine monastery. And in this case, um, we had a question earlier about the, the interaction of monks with scripture. For In Benedictine monasteries, that interaction primarily um, came in the form of the psalms. So praying through the entire cycle of 150 psalms through hymns and chanting over and over and over again until they are beyond being memorized, they are almost you know, a part of, uh, of your intellectual being. Um, was what it was what it was like to be um, a Benedictine monk and to live in that kind of community. Good question. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you mentioned how this continues to today. So, mm -hmm. so really, this practice started just as a well, partially as a, as a discipline in itself, like the discipline, and then also the purpose of like psalms specifically. <clears throat> These were considered the. Uh, Within the canon of scripture, psalms were considered the most conducive um, to um, monastic piety and um, meditation and uh, dedication to experiencing the love of God directly. Um, and so the, the emotional content, the poetic content of the psalms was um, considered much more useful than, say, for example, um, uh, going through a regular sermon cycle on Romans. I mean, that would be going that would be going on in the the regular Sunday worship as well. But in terms of daily devotional content, um, the, the Psalms were were um, elevated above uh, most of the rest of Scripture. Although there would be um, some other things that would be thrown in as well, and the rest of Scripture would be taught by um, would be taught by clergy in the the regular worship regular weekly worship as well. Uh, and Benedict's rule, in addition to this, this central, the centrality of the divine office, it also stresses prayer, um, prayer outside of the times when the office is going on. Work, which is a relatively new thing. Um, Antony mentions that he worked some to, to pay his way, but when he went out into the far desert, he obviously didn't. Um, 
monks are able from this period forward to, to work and to support themselves and actually the discipline of this organization is such and the, the attractiveness of it. Monasteries often become places where uh, wealthy Christians donate their, their inheritances. Um, they figure that this is, um, this is a good and pious thing to do. And monasteries quickly, um, and probably in a way that Benedict wouldn't have been very happy with, become wealthy. Um, they are able to cultivate lands, and they are able to uh, have lands bequeathed to them and collect the rents from those lands. And actually, they're economically, in the early Middle Ages, this is quite a successful um, enterprise to, for many monasteries, some of them less so than others, depending on where they are and how they're run. Uh, but Benedictine monasteries, that, that, work, that, that work ethic pays off. Um, monks are out there in the gardens, um, in the orchards, when they're not in, um, in communal prayer, and they're doing, they're doing good work and they're producing. Um, but above all, above work, um, well, maybe not above prayer, but um, at least in terms of the, the flavor of monastic life, um, obedience was key in the Benedictine rule, um, obedience to the abbot, obedience as a way of relating to God by, by, being, by giving up your own individual will um, in favor of the corporate will as expressed by the abbot, um, you were achieving uh, the goal of the monastic life, which is um, a, a, a direct communion, uh, communion with God without the distractions of personal property and decision-making in, um, in your own separate sphere. So these are the three major figures in early monasticism that, that represent three major different streams in uh, monastic life. And in our last couple of minutes, I'd like to look through, um, at least in my opinion, I'm kind of taking a, a page from what Junius does where he um, takes a trend and looks at some of the positive and some of the negative aspects of it. Uh, and you're, you're free on this point, on these points to um, agree or disagree with me, but um, some of the positive stuff, some positive stuff in early monastic life is it encourages charity. Um, by all means, it encourages charity to well beyond 10%, 100%. 100 of everything you own, you give to the poor. Um, and monks do a lot of good in doing that. Um, early monastic life mandates prayer and memorization of the Bible, um, regular and intense um, interaction with scripture, uh, particularly as we talked about in the form of the Psalms. Um, and it inculcates a strong sense of morality and a belief that the conversion to Christianity necessitates a real change in your life, that you can't simply become a nominal Christian, start going to church once a week and living your life the same way you were living it before. These people say that no, when Christ died, he died to to, to change who I am in some fundamental way, and I'm going to live out my understanding of what that change means, what my salvation means. Some of the negative aspects um, that I've seen. Um, the aesthetic elements, particularly in Eremitic monasticism, particularly in some of its early expressions, um, betrays a, an aversion to and even a pathological hatred of the body, which I think is non-Christian. Um, um, I've, I've left out some of the extremes that early monks went to um, in, in competition with one another, in competition with themselves, um, uh, monks doing things that permanently damage their health, um, who live in such a way that 
their their stomach for you know they damage their stomach and for the rest of their lives it, it, it bothers them. John Chrysostom is someone that um, Henry Chadwick in your reading for this week mentions as somebody who who lived a very extreme monastic calling for a few years and had to move back out of it for, for the sake of his health. Um, so there's a kind of dualism there where they start to think that any kind of pleasure taken in the body to to eat anything that tastes good, <laughs> to eat till you're full, to sleep until you're not really, really tired anymore is a bad thing and is somehow, if not itself sinful, is the short road to diabolical sin. And it's in those extremes that um, some of the sense of spiritual pride comes out, um, which is what I put on in, as number two, um, the belief that well, I've gone to such this great extreme, and I don't feel like I'm there yet. So how much further behind must everybody else be? My other, my fellow monks, and then well beyond them, the people who haven't even chosen a monastic lifestyle, who, you know, drink wine and eat at banquets and you know get married and have sex. Like how how horrific is that? Um, many of these monks that go off, kind of go off the deep end in asceticism, um, are are talking about. Um, the regular Christian life, let alone a non-Christian life, in those terms. Um, and it is not something that necessitates a, a spiritual pride, but it makes it very easy, I think, in my opinion. Um, and then there's the, the part that we've, um, that we've brought up a couple times so far this morning, is the fact that eremitical monks in particular are cutting themselves off from the Christian community. They, um, unless... In, unless you take them at their word, in, in which case their, their prayers bring them in direct contact with the rest of the Christian community, they're, they're certainly not living a physical life um, interacting with other people and able to express Christ's love to one another on a daily basis. Um, they are, they, I mean, they consider their, their, their gift of all of their goods to the poor to be an expression of that love, and they consider their continued prayers to be an expression of that love, but they don't grow together in any kind of social community that that we can understand um, in the sense that it seems to be portrayed in the New Testament, um, at least uh, according to my reading of it. So that, that I think, is maybe the single um, biggest problem with Aramaic monasticism in particular. Um, Koinovitic, of course, when you're creating your own community, um, is working on a different, different model um, and is open to um, different praises and criticisms. But, um, that's that's kind of where I come down on it. I've had um, in the, the years since I've been studying this, kind of gone back and forth, and so I'm trying to present um, as much of a, an even-handed opinion of the two sides as I can. Um, and before we leave, I wanted to ask one question um, of you guys, since it's a question that I haven't answered definitively for myself. Um, but we've talked quite a lot about the what and the how, what early monks are doing and how they're doing it and how it develops. But I've left till now this question of why. And uh, I wonder if anybody remembers in your reading of Henry Chadwick uh, this week if um, you, can tell, you, you can talk about history, about why monasticism starts to develop. And why in the third century? Why not along with the New Testament in the first? Why not even earlier? Um, does anybody remember what, what his answer is?
Exactly. Um, so it's, it's kind of a two-part answer from Chadwick. Is number one, is the church in the third century is getting lots of new members all, um, all at the same time, and it's becoming less of a stigma attached to Christianity. And uh, as the communities grow larger and grow wealthier, there's there are more material, worldly incentives to become a Christian. And so you have a large influx, particularly in the second half of the third century, when there's a long lull in persecution of um, Christians who are, whose commitment to the faith is questionable at best. And you have a segment within the church that says, no, we want to be back in the days of the first century and maybe the second century where, um, you know, the, the, this call to go back to the good old days when Christians were committed. It was, it was our small community banded together against the world. And how are we going to recreate that? We're going to recreate that by going off in the desert. And now it's just me with God. And I'm, a, I'm cutting myself off from these um, worldly ambitions of Christians. The second part of it is um, the end of persecution. And Chadwick con um, connects the, the psychological idea of somebody who's willing to die for his or her faith and who could express that willingness in martyrdom no longer having that outlet and saying, well, if, I, if the Roman authorities are not going to make a martyr out of me, I'm going to make a martyr out of myself. And instead of dying for my faith, I'm going to live, and sometimes even a, a kind of living death in the most extreme um, portrayals of it, out in the desert on my own. Um, what do you guys think about those explanations? Is that, is that convincing to you? Yeah, and this is a movement we've seen already um, in this class, even in the second century with the Marcionites, um, people saying we've lost, or the Montanists, we've lost something of the original, um, and we need to get back to it. So there's, there, there's that element that's going on there, too. Yeah. I'm just thinking, maybe it's the psychologist in me, but, I mean, Chadwick gave her two reasons, mm -hmm. the historical ones, and the other being the more individual psychological ones, mm -hmm. although a little warped, you know. Of the world and see my soul 
you know, in a sort of more protected and, and, and communal and where everybody's on the same page, environment, you know, I'm, I'm sure others have felt that too, but I think that addressing attention that just exists. And again, you know, like caring a little bit how you figure out that tension and work it out in your life or in the life of your community, however, is going to look different, different eras, different places, you know, different times. But, um, but I, I feel it. Yeah. I do. Some of the great. Part of me that wants yeah. all of us to live on the same street so that we can be neighbors mm -hmm. and well come to church together, you know? Yeah, it has an incredibly appealing side and it's much. Much of the greatest literature in the Christian tradition comes out of um, the monastic life and people that are fully committed to it, the greatest, some of the greatest spiritual insights and things like that. Uh, it, it is certainly attractive, and a lot of great theology comes from people who are trained theologically. Mm -hmm. The great irony is that the Benedictines are derided by them. They're the greedy, property owning bad guys. I mean, Thomas Aquinas refused to be they're just, I mean, mom wants mm -hmm. So it, it's just very interesting, you know. There's always this pursuit of making utopia, making heaven on earth. This place where sin is pushed out, we're all in perfect love, and we can spend all our time pursuing heavenly things. But if anything, the monastic life will show us is that it is not possible within this life. And that, yeah, people go out to the desert, but they don't leave sin. There's always this now, but not yet. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important we can, you know, think great things about the monks, and some of them do great things, some of them do horrible things, mm -hmm. right? And so I think just the, the key for me is that you know, the community of Christians, be they in monasteries, be they people in haven, there are pros and cons to all of these things. We lose sight when we start to think about these communities more highly than we are. Yeah. Yeah. We'll end here. <laughs> 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 I think sometimes, um, in terms of the government, there's this idea that some people are called to prayer. That's a specific calling, not to teaching, not to doing, et cetera, et cetera, as in the body of Christ. And it's hard to pray if you're in the middle of creating the work or but you know, in the middle of all of your obligations and you stay your days and the days. And it's kind of back to Jeff's point that, you know, if you want to be a meditative sort of person or prayer oriented person, and you're not praying for yourself, you're praying for the others that are the community, the world of God, whatever, the God, there is some sort of sense of that that might be the only place you can do it. Yeah. And that, that was a very strong sense in these other communities was that they needed this, not that it was just a one option among among many for people who, who felt a very strong call toward it, that um, they had to take some kind of ex extreme measure in order to fulfill what they felt they were already being called to do, um, like we see in the life of Antony. So um, I'll, I'll have to close this, unfortunately, um, since we've gone a little bit over time, but uh, please pray with me. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the amazing um, contributions that uh, people in your body, um, in the body of Christ, have made um, throughout its time here on earth, God, for the variety of experience that they've shown us is possible, sometimes for um, examples that we're not meant to emulate, Lord, and, um, with hindsight and 
through prayer and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can see why. Um, I thank you for the richness of this tradition, and I pray that you will um, continue to give me the chance to study it more and gain new insight. Um, please correct me when I go wrong in it, Lord, and um, be with us uh, in as a Christian body, learning um, more about you um, and about your work here on earth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you.